What is up, good people? Welcome back to the Holy Shit Pod. Today, Katie, Sam, and I are taking a small break from the topical conversations to which you may have grown accustomed. We're taking this break to respond to a question from a THSP listener, Daniel, from our sometimes bass backwards <laughs> state of Georgia. My God. That conversation will be our word of pod for the people of pod. Thanks be to pod. My God. But before we get into that, we've got a few church announcements to help you navigate life over the next week or so. As always, you can email holyshit at theolapmedia.com if you have questions or suggestions. And with that, let's get right into it. What is up, good people? Welcome back to the Church of Holy Shit and the Temple for all the saints and the ain'ts. I am the Holy Mother. Shut Shut your your mouth. mouth. The Most Reverend Brandon Thomas Maxwell, Archbishop of the one true Church of Holy Shit. Archbishop. Oh, my. And I'm the right reverend, but I lean left. Karen Teresa Ricks, high priestess of the temple for all the ain'ts, also known as the temple where the white people go to unlearn white supremacy and be transformed by the radicalization of their mind. Ah, well, come on then, come on then. And I'm the very right reverend, Samuel Lee White Uh III. I'm the real pastor here. Whatever. Brandon and Katie really ain't ain't shit. I don't know where y'all coming up with all these titles. Y'all don't work in nobody's church and ain't nobody's elected official, holy, most holy and right reverend and archbishop. Negro, please. Really? Really? That's why people call you churchy and say you always be trying to preach. Well, <laughs> you know the real safe people. We make up our own titles. It don't matter if we've been elected to come on, Bishop. To point ourselves. <laughs> uh huh. I want to be an apostle. I think you can be. Do you want to pronounce the T? Oh, do I need to apostle? We'll have an installation service right here on the Holy Shit Pod. We can install a yes. We can have an ordination and installation service. We can install all of us. We're going to have an installation service in the next church announcements. We're going to ordain Katie to the office of the uh, what, high priestess or what was it? Apostle. 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 <laughs> with the T. It's good to be back with you all again. Thank you so much for listening and tuning in to this episode of the Holy Shit Pod. Before we get into our word of pod for the people of pod, which will feature a conversation based on a listener question gotta have our church announcements. The time has come and the hour is nigh, good people. It is time for our church announcements. If you are new to the pod, at the beginning of every episode, we take a moment to talk about what is happening in the world. In the Baptist church, the only way to get folks to do something is if the pastor says it from the pulpit in the middle of service, right before the offering. Not just the Baptist. So this is our spin on that because we firmly believe that people of all faiths have to know what is happening in the world and how what is happening in the world impacts their beliefs and their ways of life. Can I get an amen up in her? Amen. That was a horrible amen. That's when we're ready for the pastors to sit his ass down. (laughs) That's like, if you don't hurry up, I'm ready. I think it's time for you to take your seat. It's like, oh my God. It's like, I just got here. (laughs) So our first announcement comes from the right Reverend Karen Teresa Ricks, who is speaking on behalf of the music ministry. This is going to be interesting because she don't sing. (laughs) She make a joyful noise. (laughs) I do praise the Lord. 
I do want to let everyone know that our worship pastor here at the Church of Holy Shit, Lil Nas X, is leading our music ministry to new heights. He's taken them from faith to faith and glory to glory. <laughs> come on, Katie. Well, come yes. on, Katie. In, come on, Jack. <laughs> we got a princess announcement. <laughs> I yes. practiced that. In a recent New York Times article, <laughs> Jasmine Hughes talked about her day in the life interview with Lil Nas X, riding around Los Angeles, listening to his soon to be released tunes, watching him work through a recording, perfecting, and creating on site and listening to his journey into stardom. And while getting a glimpse into Lil Nas X's life was interesting, the best part was listening to him talk about his yearning to live as his true authentic self, not as the publicly acceptable gay person who is divorced from sexual pleasure, but as the one who finds a rhythm between vulnerability and provocation in order to embrace himself fully as a singer and creator and relational human and as a sexual being with sexual desires that he lives into fully and publicly. And he invites others to do the same. Amen. Right. That's that same amen you tried to give me. That, shit, that was one of the announcements that people just kind of tune out. What is it you want us to know from that, Karen? Read the damn article. It's awesome. If you want to know about Lil Nas X, read the article. <sighs> No, I think the article is actually beautiful because there is something that's kind of subversive about Lil Nas X. There are a lot of queer black artists that are on the scene. Like Big Frida comes to mind. If you don't know who Big Frida is, mm, I'm not about to educate you. That sounds like somebody auntie to go out drinking on the weekend. (laughs) I'm not going to talk about Big Frida on here, but Big Frida is an artist out of New Orleans, honey. And uh, I love Big Frida. Um, Azalea Banks is another queer artist. Frank Ocean came out as bi, I think, a few years ago. I don't know if he came back out as gay later, but I think he came out as bi a few years ago. So there are all these queer artists that are on the scene, but I don't know if any of them have the sort of notoriety and fame that Lil Nas X has been able to garner. So for me, it feels really exciting to see his evolution and the fact that he started off on the country charts of all places. And then now we see him doing his more more of a little pop thing on SNL, splitting open his pants Mm -hmm. for the world to see his business. And then like having, I think the first like kiss between two men on the BET awards of all places. Yep, yep. All of it's to say that it's worth reading because even though there have been so many people who have come out before, Lil Nas X came in at the tipping point, right? This is the place where he's able to do things because other people set some groundwork for him. One of the quotes in this article is from Elton John, and who has, of course, gone through all stages of being out during his career. But he says, what makes Lil Nas X so extraordinary is how brave he is at being so outwardly gay within the urban ooh, mm, urban music world. Maybe I'm not going to say that. He said that's where he's truly groundbreaking. I mean, you can leave that in because we know that white people use urban as a code for black. Is that where you had a problem with saying urban? Yeah. Yeah, because I knew that was, that was I hadn't. Y'all have really broken some white people. They don't want to say anything that Anything. <laughs> they scare it. <laughs> They're like, oh, I can't even talk, Lord. Oh, shit, like, oh, Lord. Well, I just... (laughs) (laughs) I appreciate your sensitivity, Katie. To your last point, Katie, I do think that this is huge because there are so many stories of Black gay men who have come out 
and their music careers have ended. Like Billy Porter is one of those stories. Like he was on the way to a wonderful musical career, but the more that people found out that he was gay, they wouldn't buy his records. Mm-hmm. And I ain't gonna out nobody because there are a few other names I could call, but all I'm gonna say is, don't you remember you told me you love me, Ooh, baby? Yeah. A chair is still a chair. When there's no one. Even when there's come no on, one. Come on, come on, Sitting there. But a, but a chair is not a house. Hey. Yeah. We so black. And a house <laughs> is not a home. When there's no one there. Anyway, but I didn't come to out nobody. The next announcement comes from the Ministry of Black Magic and Beauty, and that is coming from Pastor Sam. I don't understand why Brandon thinks he has to announce my announcement. But anyway, the Ministry of Black Magic and Beauty. Because the, I'm the Archbishop. The Ministry of Black Magic and Beauty. <laughs> Wants everyone to know that the Olympic Games Committee and everybody affiliated with it on some real bullshit. Mm -hmm. A week or so ago, we had two reports that really just pissed me off. First, Shakari Richardson was suspended for one month after testing positive for THC, one of the chemicals found in cannabis. And I'm going to tell y'all why that pissed me off. Because y'all grandmamas is rubbing uh, hemp oil and stuff all on their knees to get their arthritis right. People's using it for medicinal purposes. <laughs> Half of the states, it's legal to sell it in. And y'all going to block this girl from, from running in the Olympics, probably the fastest woman on earth, because she smoked a little weed after her mom and her best friend died. Amen. <laughs> you so petty. You so petty. It wasn't the same. Yeah, it, <laughs> I know, but she admitted to it. But that still makes it ridiculous to even stop her from running in in the games. It wasn't about some hemp oil treatment. But this is the most pertinent thing about it. Michael Phelps, white, amazing swimmer from the U.S., was smoking pot. Everybody knew about it months before his last Olympic Games, and he he was able to go. This woman is an incredible runner, and, like, she didn't try to get around it. She didn't try to, like, make up stuff. She's like, this is what's going on in my life. It's ridiculous to keep her out of the Olympic Games. It's more than ridiculous because I'm sitting here like, it's not like she was taking performance-enhancing drugs. If anything, the weed was making her slower. (laughs) That's what my daughter's saying. She's like, why would someone smoke pot to speed up? Apparently, I saw a report, and this is supposed to be the justification for it. Marijuana can mask some performance-enhancing drugs, and that's why it is illegal. Oh. But I still ain't getting with it. But I feel like it would cancel out the enhancements. I'm with you. Okay, then. I'm with you. Um, the biggest thing is, I think, is because she's urban. <laughs> well played. <laughs> <laughs> New code word for nigga. No, I'm just playing. I'm just playing. <laughs> but isn't that how white people are using it? Yes. That is what it is. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> how y'all using it, Katie? How y'all using it? <laughs> I just think that it is all really ridiculous and Shakari should be able to run. 100%. I agree. And I wish that was it, but it gets worse. And I know you heard about Tokyo banning swim caps designed for natural hair from the Tokyo Olympic Games. Yep. So a British company called Soul Cap. Y'all heard what I said there? <laughs> soul Cap is a... To make your soul <laughs> glow. Y'all better go watch Coming to America. <laughs> Soul Cap is a company that makes swim caps designed specifically to protect thick and curly hair. They submitted their swim cap to be certified for competition in the International Swimming Federation or FINA, F-I-N-A, rejected. FINA. 
It's Fina. Fina. I knew you was going to say Fina. That is so black. <laughs> I had a joke coming behind that. Fina rejected the application, but if they don't get off these black folks, we Fina turn some shit over. That's what I'm trying to say. <laughs> <laughs> that is awesome. Well, here's the thing that's that's even more ridiculous about it. Well, there's two things about it. One, it's almost impossible for anyone who has anything other than shoulder length hair to get their hair into even white folks into a swim cap. First of all, Secondly, to have a bigger swim cap can't be aerodynamic or water dynamic. I'm not sure how you say it. It's not an advantage. It's not an advantage. It's a disadvantage, if anything. Correct. Child. Well, it is the way the Olympics are being run this year or always. It's racist. It is. It's absolutely racist. It's anti-urban. Do you hear what I'm saying? <laughs> anti-urban. Anti-urban. But, but what we're going to do is we're going to order Kate one of these soul caps. That's what we're going to do. And we're going to let you try it out and tell us and tell us what the real deal is. I was just going to put a plug in here and say if there's any representatives from Skull Cap who want to advertise on oh, yeah. uh, the Holy Whoa. Shit Pod, you know, we can, what, what happened, Katie? That's great. <laughs> That's fantastic. Katie is peak progressive white today. She's like, yes, black on the business, soul cap advertisements. I'm not thinking about the money. I'm just thinking about the fact that- Oh, I'm thinking about the money. I swim and and this is a ridiculous thing and I would love to support their business. Please let me do a headshot with you in the soul cap. I, I don't think I'm the right person to be in the soul cap, but I have an idea of a human. So. I'll even darken your skin a little bit. That I would find offensive. Blackface. Oh my God. Put some braids hanging out the bottom of <laughs> We will make you Rachel Dolezal, girl. Come on. No, thank you. But you know what? It actually gets worse than this. Do you know about the two teenage runners from Namibia who are banned from the Olympics as well? Christine Mboma and Beatrice Maslingi have naturally high testosterone levels. They're not doping. They've done all of these tests. They are not allowed to race. Because of their testosterone levels. Correct. Unless they take some kind of medication that decreases their testosterone level. They're not doping. It's ridiculous. Well, again, it's it's beyond ridiculous. It's clear from these three stories. I mean, these are the ones we're hearing about, right? At least... The Olympic Games this year and probably forever are actively being racist and trying to keep black women out of competing. Clearly. I think that this just continues to highlight the fact that the Olympics is racist and always has been racist. It goes all the way back. It's like the 1972 Olympics at the very least when the uh, men had their little black power fist. I don't I don't have all of the reference right now in this moment. My ADHD medicine is not working. But I think the thing that came up for me is that this is happening in the Tokyo Olympics. And I'm curious, like, what is the relationship between the sort of Olympic committee and the country that is hosting or the city that is hosting the Olympic Games? And I did an intercultural competence and anti-racism training with some kids one time. And it was an international global group of kids. And the first thing that came up for some of these uh, young people was, hey, we don't experience race in the same way in our country. So I think that what this highlights for me is it's just another reminder that race always has been and still continues to be a global construction. And even if you're in Tokyo where there aren't that many Black people, there are still ways in which race comes up and smacks us in the face. Yeah, and you, you mentioned, Brandon, in the 1972 Olympics where there was this kind of political protest by two Olympians um, named Vincent Matthews and Wayne Collette. 
And during the medal ceremony, both of the runners refused to stand at attention for the U.S. National Anthem and raised their fist in the air, that black power symbol that we love and champion often in protest to some of the racist and oppressive things that were happening back home in the United States. You know, they actually received a lifelong ban from the International Olympic Committee after that. And in fact, like it happened right after that, because then they had to be scratched from the four by 400 relay. So they didn't even get to participate in the rest of the Olympics. Wow. White people gone white. That's what you say, Sam. Matthew said their actions were directed at the U.S. coaching staff, not the flag or the national anthem. He says, we're just mad about a lot of things. We didn't think it would blow up like this. Four years earlier, one of those same men had to pay for their own travel to the Olympic trials because of the type of racism that they face here in the U.S. And this is just crazy. Like, Katie, get your people. Jesus. (laughs) And that was 49 years ago. I mean, things ain't changed at all. Not at all. Let's go ahead and prepare to wrap up this section. We have one more announcement. It's the last one, but certainly not the least one. Last week, my husband shared an NPR story with me that had the following headline. The proportion of white Christians in the United States has stopped shrinking. Thanks, Trump. So in 1996, 80% of white folks in America identified as Christian. Over the last 25 years, that number has been cut nearly in half with only 44% of white folks in America currently identifying as Christian. This new report denotes that the trend wherein the white identified so-called Christian folks are shrinking and the non-religious folks are increasing has plateaued. We've reached sort of a stagnation in that trend. And I guess white folks are now holding steady with their MAGA hats and their crosses. Interesting. I don't know if you heard me. I said, thanks, Trump. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think we owe it to (laughs) folks like Donald Trump who really have stoked racial fears and used religion, specifically Christianity, and made it almost synonymous with whiteness and Americanism. Mm -hmm. And so now if you're white, if you're American, then by default, you almost have to be Christian because it stands against anything else that's evil and not white and not American. Basically, white people are coming back to the church in droves because of racism. I don't know if they're coming back. They're just not leaving anymore. They're not. They're not disidentifying with Christianity. I, I um, and whatever Christian means. I mean, I don't think it means anything anymore to white Presbyterians. So, or to white. Mm, I meant Christians, but <laughs> we'll go with a Freudian slip there. I mean, Garrison Keeler says anyone who thinks sitting in a church can make you a Christian must also think that sitting in a garage makes you a car. Exactly. That's good. That's good. I would be interesting to know how other ethnicities identify based on this trend. So if the white folks have plateaued, where are like African-American folks in this uh, data? Where are Hispanic folks? Because if there is like some type of social phenomenon that's driving white people not disidentifying with the church, then there has to be some numbers on the other side saying, okay, if that's the case, I don't want to be a part of this. Well, I think that's the thing about research like this that frustrates me. Like anytime that we see a Time Magazine article or a New York Times headline that says the Christian church is shrinking, it's always talking about white people. And so I am grateful that this NPR piece did specify it's talking about white folks who identify as Christians in America. And I do think that there's something to be said for how this article 
article wrote about this phenomenon, because it's not just saying this is a Christian thing. They're talking about the political implications of white evangelicals no longer being a shrinking population, right? So I, I think to the extent that Black folks have political power in this country, and we've, as we saw in the state of Georgia in the uh, last presidential election and in the Senate races, there Black folks do have political power. To the extent that we do, I would assume, using the same lens as this article, that the majority of Black folks in America, even if they don't identify as Christian, they are engaged in some sort of Christian religious practice, at least peripherally, and that is enough to engage that population from a political perspective. Amen. And that's not to say that Black folks are a monolith at all. I'm just saying that, whereas I think white folks just are more prone to be like, man, screw the church. I hate the church. It's, nice. it's horrible. And Black people be like, yeah, I don't really fool with church. I ain't going there on Sunday morning. And okay, cool. And we'll still get up at the work show and be like, first giving honor to God who is the head of my life. <laughs> I, I just want to Thank God. (laughs) It's in us in Mm -hmm. a different way. And even like I have friends who are so atheist and so agnostic, but we will get churchy with the best of them real, real quick because it's just Mm -hmm. something that's familiar. So that's a whole other conversation about the sort of cultural impact of religion or the ways in which our religion is cultural. And maybe that will come up in the second part of the episode. But for now, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to engage a listener question from Daniel who lives in the state of Georgia. We'll be right back after this. If you've enjoyed listening to the Holy Shit Pod and Theolab Media's other podcast, Healing Jephthah's Daughters, I invite you to head on over to patreon.com forward slash Media and sign up to be a patron today. By signing up to be a patron, you'll begin getting access to exclusive content and other benefits, and you will also help to support Sam, Katie, and I, Lisa Weaver, and all the rest of us here at Theolab Media who are committed to transforming how humans engage faith, spirituality, culture, and the world around them. In case you have forgotten, Theolab Media believes that candid conversations rooted in vulnerability, mutual respect, and authenticity can inspire each of us to be more fully human. If you are interested in supporting this work, again, that's patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Theolab Media. And with that, let's get right back into it. This week, we are excited to engage a question submitted by the Holy Shit Pod listener, Daniel from Georgia. Daniel writes... I really appreciate the theological perspectives that each of you bring to each episode. It has been healing to know that there are people out there who wrestle with faith as you do on the Holy Shit Pod. Oh, <laughs> thanks, Daniel. I feel like I've heard a lot of your stories interspersed in discussions. Come on, interspersed. <laughs> Every time I hear a snippet, it makes me want to know more about each of your backgrounds. I want to take each of you out for coffee and just ask you all the questions and listen to you all tell me stories. I don't drink coffee, but you can take me out for a drink. So I guess I'm really just asking if you can share... Don't do it. (laughs) So I guess I'm really just asking if you can share your autobiographies at length, spiritual or otherwise. Um, Sam, that's going to be hard for you. So I guess... (laughs) I'm wondering things like, what is your relationship to the church? How do you come to call yourself Christian? Do you still call yourself a Christian? No, really, do you? Mm. Sam, how has humanism challenged you as a pastor? What was your worst experience in the church? But really, anything you're willing to share. Thank you for considering these questions. Until the next episode, peace. 
I see what you did there, Daniel. That was real cute, taking our little sign off. You must be somebody who listens to the very end of every episode, which means you are certainly signed up on <laughs> Patreon.com to support <laughs> the Holy Shit Pot and Feel Lab Media. But anyway, yes, Daniel, we are happy to reply to all those questions and more. It sounds like you're mostly interested in our theological, faith, or spiritual journeys. So we'll try to stick to that and we'll just see how the conversation goes. Y'all keep me accountable if we don't get to every single one of these questions. Let's circle back to it before we wrap the episode episode for today because I want to enter the conversation a little bit differently. It seems like we talk about these things all the time and I'm realizing from Daniel's message that perhaps the ways in which we talk about it don't give comprehensive stories about our spiritual journeys which seems like what Daniel is interested in hearing. So y'all share that way if you want to but I'm going to invite you to consider this question. In light of our earlier conversation and the church announcement from the Ministry of Black Magic and Beauty, if you had to describe your spiritual life as an Olympic <laughs> exercise. What would it be? Do you mean Olympic event? Sure. She went white again. <laughs> she can't help it. <laughs> I'm just saying. Olympic sports. In the spirit of Fina or Fina, depending on how you want to say it, I think that I would uh, describe my spiritual life as a swimming event, probably the 500 freestyle or longer. Yeah. I think there is a feeling that you get when you're swimming where you can actually feel the water. Like in order to swim well, you have to be able to go with the water. That may seem really weird if you're not a swimmer, but I think most swimmers understand that. And like sometimes I get in the water and I am just with the water. I, I know where it starts and where it ends. Then there are other times where I'm like, where in the hell is the water? I'm like flailing around and can't do anything. So I think that because a 500 requires you to be swimming for a very long time. You can be in the flow for a good long while or you can just be shot. And 500 is a long way to swim if you are just flailing out there. I'm trying to understand, do you just flail when you're doing the 500? Thank you for clarifying that. Sometimes. Because <laughs> your spiritual life sound a mess, honey. You sound like you drowning. <laughs> sometimes I am. I mean, sometimes I feel like I'm in the groove. I feel like I have that time with God. I am able to uh, find that grounding and that connection. And then there are other times where I'm so scattered, I have so much going on that I just can't be present with God. And so that's the connection with that. In my work as a spiritual director, people will say, gosh, I wish that I wish I were on that high all the time, that, that place where you feel the water. And I'm like, you know what? Part of spiritual life is that there are those ups and downs. So there are those times when... You feel like you're floating in the water and then other times when you don't. So in a second, I want to ask the question a different way. And just to prompt you before you go, Sam, I want to ask if your relationship to the church was an Olympic exercise, which one would it be? And I think that we might answer that question differently. And the reason I'm saying that now is because, Ricks, I'm surprised that nothing about what you said reflected the church. It was all about you. And so I think that, you know, one of Daniel's questions has been, what is our relationship to the church? And so I'm interested in the fact that nothing that you said had to do with the church. And as I'm thinking about my own response, I would also say the same thing. Like, I don't think that anything related to the church, at least for my spiritual practice right now, came into the equation. So if I were to name my spiritual life as an Olympic activity of some shape, form, or fashion, I think it would definitely have to be like synchronized swimming. Hmm. You spend most of the time with your head underwater? 
Keeping your head above water. I don't think that you have to have your head underwater all the time. There are some times where your head is underwater and your legs are in the air. And I've been uh, walking like six or seven miles a day. So my thighs is real cute right now. So I don't mind them being out the water. But <laughs> in terms of my spiritual life, I think that I'm saying synchronized swimming because that is something that is done in community. It is done with others. And there are ways in which your activity has to be synced up with others in order to get a high score. I don't think hmm. that spirituality is about getting a high score. But for me, I feel most energized and most alive when my life is in sync with others. And I think the fact that with synchronized swimming, it's me, it's not a race. Like, I'm not sitting there trying to get from one end of the pool to the other end of the pool. Most of the time, I'm just sitting there treading water. Is it just treading when you got to, like, do your arms in a little fan on top and you kind of pedal? You just stand above? Yeah. Yeah. I am keeping my head above water and waiting until it's my time to move. I'm not moving every time, and I'm not always doing the exact same thing that somebody else is doing at the exact same time, but there is a rhythm to what we're doing. I think synchronized swimming is what comes to mind for me because treading water is hard. And staying above water is hard. But it's the synchronicity. It's the synchronicity for me. It's the synchronicity. It's not necessarily the, the, the swimming. Correct. Well, I mean, I don't think it's any synchronized activity. I do think that it's something about swimming as well. It is being in the water. It is um, being surrounded by that water, becoming one with the water. To use some of Katie's language, like I've always been someone who, if I'm feeling really stressed and I'm feeling really exhausted and frustrated or whatever the emotion is, to go sit by any body of water really restores my soul. I remember the first time that I had some tension in my relationship with my husband and we went on vacation and we spent some time by water. And when we came back, he was like, what happened? Like, why are you so different? I was like, oh, I just sat by the ocean. Like, I feel better. I feel different. My soul feels Mm -hmm. restored. And so it's the synchronized activity in water for me. I think for me, it would be any type of relay. And similar to Brandon, it's that way because it involves contributions from other people. It's like you you have a certain part to play, mm-hmm. um, but the race can't be completed alone, right? This activity, this event, if you will, Katie, it can't be done in singularity. Like it has to be done in collaboration with others. Mm-hmm. And I believe that's exactly how I would describe my own spiritual life. Like I, it, it doesn't happen just with me alone. Like I, it, it has to happen with other people pouring into me, helping to feed kind of those things that need to be fed within me. So that brings us to the next part of the conversation. So if you were to describe your relationship to the church, because for many people, at least in my world, they experience spirituality, connection with God in the context of a church or religious community. And that's the easiest way to be synced up with others. At least that's what some people would tell you. But I have a strange feeling that we might have different reads on that. So I think if I were to answer this question, because y'all know I can't answer anything simply, I would have to have like two or three different answers. The first answer would be simple, and that would be that my spiritual life would be gymnastics, and it would probably be either like the artistic or the rhythmic expression. It would not be on the trampoline because that feels extremely dangerous. And I say that because gymnastics events have been contested at every Summer Olympic Games since the birth of the modern Olympic movement in 1896 for 32 years. Years, it only allowed men 
to engage. And that's also how my spiritual life was constructed because for so long, all of my spirituality was defined by the church and the church really did pride men and men only, and some still do. Um, And then slowly but surely, my spirituality opened up in a way that started to understand, hey, I've inherited some really restrictive, patriarchal, homophobic, uh, white supremacist understandings of God. And then I think in its modern, you know, manifestation of my spirituality, it is kind of artistic and it is playful. And I like to move around and dance. And those are ways that I experience God, which we'll get into later. The second way I might answer the question is that it would be any of the discontinued summer sports uh, that might be cro- uh, croquet, lacrosse, polo, um, <laughs> tug of war. I think tug of war is probably the most accurate uh, discontinued winter sport. And if you didn't know that tug of war was an Olympic sport, it was contested as a team event in the Summer Olympics at every Olympiad from 1900 to 1920. It was discontinued continued after that. And so I think that that also mirrors my spiritual life, but it was in many ways this kind of tug of war back and forth. And there are still moments where I lean back into that pattern. But ultimately, I've tried to discontinue the cycle of tugging and warring with anybody because ain't nobody got time for that. And the last way I might answer it, because again, I got to be a little bit extra, is it will be any of the winter sports because no one cares about the winter sports. Like no one actually watches them. There's not as much hype about them as there are about the Summer Olympics, but it would be the winter games because it's still happening. And in some ways it's way cooler, even though it's a little bit chilly, but no one watches and no one cares about it. And so they don't believe that it's actually happening, but it is. It is. It's way cooler because it's actually frozen. That makes it way cooler? Okay, Elsa. (laughs) He said chili. (laughs) Oh, I get what you were doing there. Cute. (laughs) So, tug of war was a team sport in the Summer Olympics. So, what I wonder, because I know you, I would experience you as feeling, I would think that you would describe yourself as one person on a side of a tug of war rope. Is that correct? Or do you feel yourself as part of a group of people on the tug-of-war rope. At this point, I don't view myself as anywhere on the rope. Ah, right, right. But when that was a uh, sort of way I would describe my spirituality, it definitely would have been on a team because it was very much us and them, right? Mm -hmm. Like in that season in my life, which is why it's discontinued, it was all about being on the right side. I was the us, you were the them, and we were tugging against you, and one of us was going to win. And ultimately, because of evangelism, our goal was to get you on our side of the line. Right. Yep. We want you to be on the right side with us and you are the opposition. So it actually was a team sport in that season. Yeah. And I think now in the moments where I kind of regress into those patterns, it very much feels like an individual activity wherein there's a system or a group of people tugging and pulling against me. And I'm just trying to maintain sort of my grounding. Yep. And not actually trying to tug of war with them, but just trying to get everybody to let go of the rope because ropes ain't never been kind to black people. That's a word right there. I think the interesting thing that I've been wrestling with, I don't know that I can think of an Olympic event except wrestling is one, is that I make a distinction between Christian community and the church as an institution. And I think for me, the church as an institution is very disconnected from my spiritual life, which you said before um, that you didn't hear anything about the church in my description. But my desire for community with people in some kind of spiritual community is pretty strong. And so some people conflate that with the church. I don't think I do right now. And so I don't think I have an Olympic sport, but I think that for me, that's what I've been coming to recently. I'm going to say soccer. Okay. Because... 
I generally think that soccer is one of the most tiring sports that you can play. They run for like how long is a, how long is a game? Ninety minutes. It's so I feel like it's so exhausting, right? I played football. You're not running for the entire game. I've done baseball, softball, other sports. Soccer is like the most exhausting thing. That's how I would describe uh, my uh, experience with the church. Mm-hmm. It's tiring. It is exhausting. It is draining. But why has it been those things? Oddly enough, you would think it would be like the weight of like journeying with people emotionally and spiritually as they go through their valleys and mountains and all of this stuff. That's not the tiring part. In some ways, that's rewarding and fulfilling for me. The tiring part and the exhausting part are the people in this process who should accompany you on your journey, mentors, pastors, people who have gone before you who really should be carving a path or lighting a path and offering their shoulders for the next generation to stand on, really dropping the ball, really seeing you as their competition, really making this more of a sport or a a race or being threatened by emerging or upcoming pastors or people who might be able to preach better or be more spiritually in tune and and really challenging, challenging your ability to, to live into this calling and do this work authentically like you want to. And it's not because you're not qualified or because you have some type of huge shortcomings or you're, you're trying to get in here and steal all the people's money, literally trying to live authentically into what God has called you to do and the opposition that you face is from the people who should be supporting you. That's why it's tiring and exhausting is that I have to give all my energy to dealing with that type of shit than helping people who need help. All right. I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but I just got a call from the IOC. That's the International Olympic Committee. And they wanted us to know that just like SoulCap, they are unwilling to sanction our podcast. Apparently, it's just too black. That's to say, it's time for a break. So let's take a quick moment to decenter white supremacy and we'll be right back after this. So, Sam, next we're talking about your surgery, right? I recently underwent an outpatient procedure called a vertical sleeve gastrectomy, uh, also known as VSG or a sleeve or a gastric sleeve. It's actually bariatric or weight loss surgery where they remove like a portion of your stomach. Hmm. And so um, I'm about 45 days post-op. It's actually been this kind of a, an amazing journey. It's been a journey, but my, my my health journey prior to that had also been like crazy. You know, two extended stays in the hospital over the years, both with like $30,000 uh, bills from each uh, hospital. I was taking like more than 11 different types of medication at one point. Wow. I'm on this journey um, in support of my health right now and that was a part of it. And so um, I'm, I'm, I'm interested to talk to you all about it and answer your questions. I'm excited about it. I think it'll be something that's helpful for listeners to hear yeah. and I think it'll be helpful for us to know how we can support you and love on you even though you are very resistant to it. <laughs> all right. Enough of that for now. We will talk more about Sam's health journey next week. But for now, let's get back into our conversation with a follow-up question from Daniel. The question is, what has been your worst experience in church? 
before we talk about this, I do want to acknowledge, I don't believe in rehearsing spiritual trauma. I think that there's a way in which rehearsing that trauma, talking about that trauma just reifies it and makes it its own sort of religious practice in and of itself. Um, Mira J. Blige had her documentary recently, and she's just going back through the same trauma she's been rehearsing for the last 50 years, telling us, no more drama, no more drama, no more. No, girl, you still got drama. You saying the same thing. So we're not here to do that, but I do want to honor your question. And this will likely be one of the last episodes that we talk about this uh, in this way because we're just going to start pointing people back to this episode whenever they ask questions about our sort of spiritual traumas and experiences with the church. So to that end, Katie, what was your worst experience in the church? While coming out and being denied ordination for 14 years and was a significant part of my trauma with the church, for sure, and is probably books worth of conversations. For me, the worst experience of the church has been serving a church being a part of a church where they have sought to keep the institution alive rather than challenging those who are doing something wrong, those who are causing detriment to the community, leaders who are. And I think that for better or worse, I have like a strong connection to integrity. And I recognize that I define that and other people may define that differently. So that is true. But I have an incredibly difficult time with disingenuous, self-serving people. And I've seen that in pastors I've worked with or attended a church with. And so when I see that, and when I see the damage it does to the church, I just can't be a part of it. I have had so many experiences like that, that those are the worst experiences in the church. Can you give me an example? (laughs) (laughs) He's sipping tea. I have witnessed financial mismanagement. I have witnessed people saying, I'm the pastor, I can do whatever I want to. I can make unilateral decisions about things. I have witnessed someone making twice as much money as I do. I have witnessed people getting paid sabbaticals and and me getting zero money for a sabbatical. And and granted, sabbatical is a luxury, but the, the point is that the dynamics of the congregation prioritize a senior pastor or head of staff, and there's no desire for equity. There's no desire for those making twice as much money to be actually held responsible for financial mismanagement. Is that a safe? It's not a safe example, but... It doesn't have to be safe. I mean, and, 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 yeah. Mine ain't going to be safe, I'm going to tell you. <laughs> Mine ain't either. Yeah. <laughs> and I was going to say, I wasn't telling you not to talk your shit. I was more so saying, like, I'm saying for listeners, like, we're not going to do this all the time. Yeah, yeah. I appreciated what you said because... I- Actually, by talking about that all the time, it becomes something that's not real and it becomes something that's outside of myself. And what I realize is that the trauma is so deep and comes up in times that I'm not even in control of. I'm currently working on making that real and 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 befriending it in your terms that I, I don't even think I know how to talk about my relationship with the church and coming out anymore. Oddly enough, people might assume that me coming out was my most difficult experience in the church, but it wasn't because when I came out, I'd already come out of my, that relationship with the church. Like for me, I'd already become a staff person at church. And when you become a staff person, that changes your relationship to churches, period. The church is then an employer. Regardless of what it says, the church is your employer. So I'd already made that transition mentally, spiritually, all of it. And then when I came out, there were churches that actually I I would have never attended pre-being out that were inviting me into their space. And they all espoused this sort of justice 
for lack of a better term, they espoused that they, they claim to be communities that valued racial equity and racial justice. They claim to be communities that valued um, being inclusive of all genders, sexual identities, sexual expressions. They, they they claimed to be this community, and I think they tried to, and they thought that they were, just like conservatives think that they're like the only people going to heaven. But the reality is that white supremacy still snuck in that thing and embedded itself in our structures. And I was working at a progressive liberal church that shall remain nameless. And sort of white supremacist mindsets embedded themselves in that church's DNA. And when it came up and it came time to critique those things, it became clear just how deeply wedded the majority of us were to that white supremacist homophobic structure that was willing to allow the only two black pastoral staff to take pay cuts on a monthly basis to sustain the lives of white people who were also on staff. They were willing to try to say, well, you know, the black staff members, they got full-time jobs, but that's because we all agreed that we were going to be bivocational pastors. And so it was in this sort of structure wherein I was like, wait a minute, we're basically creating a plantation wherein white folks are reaping the majority of the financial benefit of being a part of this staff. And the black folks are carrying the congregation and being compensated a fraction of what the others are being compensated. And so for me, that was my worst experience with the church because I just, I I thought that I was being embraced in this community that had the same theological perspective as I did. But what that highlighted for me is that oftentimes, even when we start to claim justice um, as a goal, many people don't have um, what it takes to bring that to fruition. There's always going to come a barrier. There's always going to come a way in which our subconscious sort of assumptions about who values most and the ways in which we value people will be made manifest in simple everyday decisions. And so that just highlighted for me, I just really don't want to be a part of this institution in that way. I'm happy to come and preach. I'm happy to come and sing. I'm happy if you want to employ me. But in terms of me being a part of the church and the church being the primary way in which I experience God and or spirituality, nope, that ain't for me. Interesting. In my experience, it's it's just a little different in that I still have a deep appreciation for the institution and understand what the institution offers for many people and the value of that offering in the lives of those folks. I come from rural Alabama, where the church may be one of the most important institutions in the community still. My challenge, and I think one of the most painful, hurtful experiences has come in the last probably about five years of my life with the church. Um, But it, it has more to do with certain and specific actors in the church who wield a certain degree of power. Um, the last institution um, or church that I was a part of, the pastor came to me, I was graduating seminary, reached out, came to me and said, hey, I'm getting ready to retire. You know, God has showed me, God has showed me that you're going to be my successor, if you will. Or the next God has showed me you have a heart for people. God has showed me your gifts. You, you, you're you, serious about your call, all of these things. And I believe God has sent you here for a specific reason. Me being a Baptist preacher, I was excited. I went to a United Methodist Seminary. And so I understood that structure and that many of my United Methodist friends who were in the ordination process would end that process being appointed to a church and some of the things that I had to worry about, uh, they didn't have to worry about on the same level. 
And so to have this pastor approach me at the end of my seminary journey was exciting for me. When he approached me, he had this whole plan for the next four years and um, how at the end of that process, he wanted to retire and he wanted to slowly transition me into this role of the next pastor of the church. I think it became apparent to me about halfway through this process that the pastor was less concerned about what my calling was and the relationship that I had with the church or that the church had with me as much as he was concerned about his own personal retirement and how he fared after he retired, that he was still emeritus, that he still was getting paid, that he still had an office in the church. And the moment that it appeared that I wasn't making decisions or acting in a way that expressly supported his agenda for his retirement, he like dropped me like a bad habit. It was like, I have nothing for him. And it it took something as simply as me saying, I need to take a step away. I need to step back. At the time I was about to marry my wife, uh, Jamie, who lived in South Africa. I was going through the immigration process. I needed to figure a whole lot of things out. And, And at the same time, there was this tug of war of power within the church between the pastor and the deacons and the trustees. People weren't communicating. People were saying the pastor doesn't have power to do this. He was saying, I got all the power. And I said, y'all, I'm in the, I'm getting caught in the middle of this. I got to focus on getting married and bringing my wife here. I'm going to take a step back and I'm going to let y'all deal with this drama that has nothing to do with me. And I need to make that decision for my own sanity. And when I did that, the pastor literally washed his hands of me. I, I was even told by a pastor that was close, that we all were kind of close with, that when I stepped away, the pastor said he was done. Like he would, he would not do anything that would give me any appearance of favor with anyone in the congregation because I will certainly, absolutely not be the next pastor of that church. Um, that said a lot to me about his motivation for even approaching me in the beginning. And so I, I, I was a part of that church for eight years. And so it was just interesting that like these are people's lives and futures and careers and livelihood that people have to take care of their families and live and like that you could do that to somebody I thought was just the worst of evils. And I'm still healing from this. And so it's still painful and traumatic to 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 rehearse it or to talk about it because I get angry when I think about it because I would never do that to anybody. I would never put anybody in that situation. And so that that's my worst experience. But again, it's certain actors, the church itself, I still love. I still love this work. I still love being able able to journey along with people. I understand that people need spiritual support when they're going through, when they're traumatized, when they're hurt, when they lose loved ones, when they're sick, when they have a cancer diagnosis. That is still really important. It doesn't have to be couched in this language or a definition of the church, but that has been what the church has been for me growing up, you know, as a teenager, early in ministry and in my own professional career. And so I still have a deep appreciation for the church. It's just some people that just need to, you know, die. But see, for me, the church isn't even about the institution itself. I think that's 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 the tension. As much as I feel God or feel holiness or feel some sort of connection with something bigger than myself when I sit inside of certain religious spaces, for me, church is people. And because you can't get church without people, and people are the ones who always end up messing shit up, like— I'd rather not deal with it. There's something about, like, like the church isn't different from a business. It's not different from an educational institution. It's not different from a nonprofit organization. It ministers the same type of hurt, trauma, and harm that all these other spaces do while also claiming to be special and different. After I recently uh, was invited to preach a sermon, I connected with one of the parishioners who was present for the Zoom worship service, and we were talking about that person's spirituality 
And one of the things that came up in our conversation is this notion that the most churchy thing or the most holy thing that either of us has ever experienced is an AA meeting. Now, I haven't necessarily gone to an AA meeting uh, myself. That person had, I've only borne witness to AA meetings is what I, is how I should frame it. I they didn't eavesdrop on it, but I've borne witness to what transpires in an AA meeting. I talked to the folks who were convening that space because I needed to do some work in the kitchen and that group was meeting in the basement of that church. And so I overheard what was happening in that space and I heard people who were talking about their joys, talking about their wins, talking about how long they had been clean, talking about challenges with their family, talking about how they had failed, talking about how they got triggered and being present for one another without reading scripture, without the choir singing 37 songs. And there was a type of intimacy and connectedness that I felt in the space as just a witness, an onlooker that I very, very rarely heard inside of religious communities proper or the church proper. And I'm, I guess I'm showing my hand here just in, in signaling that in some ways, a lot of what I think church is happens on Sunday mornings for many people, at least in the American context. Yeah, I was just about to say that. But it is that sort of uh, Monday through Saturday phenomenon wherein we do see people pimping staff members, doing inappropriate things with parishioners. Like, it's during that time frame where the people actually fuck up. Sunday is is a spectacle. Sunday is is a show, right? It's a show that I'm often entertained by and sometimes want to partake in, especially the singing. But Sunday is a show. Uh, <laughs> um, but I have been witness to a lot of folks who are a part of the community Monday through Saturday, a part of the conversations, a part of the small groups, a part of the intimate dialogue, a part of the building up of each other that does happen in that religious space. And that's one of the reasons that I say those parts of the institution are the parts that I don't want to throw away or the parts that I do think can be salvaged. But there are some other parts that that can go in the trash. And so I but I think I have been witness to a lot of people being given life and it doesn't necessarily happen on Sunday morning. They get excited on Sunday morning, but the life part comes Monday through Saturday and in the more intimate relationships that they have. And often those are through through the church. So we've tarried here in this conversation for a while. We love hearing from you. If you have a question like Daniel, then just send us an email and we're happy to respond to it live on the podcast. Each week we end our episodes by inviting you, inviting all listeners to experience life and life more abundantly. If you were raised in a Black Baptist church in the South, you likely had an invitation to receive Christ at the end of your bulletin where the choir sang eight to seven verses of come to Jesus just now and the deacon stood out front and then the mothers were come and just give you a little piece of paper and a little hymn book to write down your name and information on so you could join the church and be baptized. So that's that, that's what this is right now, but we're not trying to evangelize or proselytize you. We're just merely inviting you to life and life more abundantly. We offer life to you, oh my sibling. So we're not offering Christ no more. We're just offering life. It's not Christ's life. And so if Christ is life, then you should not be offended if I say... Is life not Christ? Huh? It might not be for non-Christians. If you know Christ is life and life is Christ, then you can say Christ. But I'm going to say life because that's the most open terminology. <laughs> Please don't put this in. I'm just being foolish. I mean, leave it all in. We're, we are being foolish. This is what I was talking about earlier about being churchy and like loving like the banter. Like I can go in. We go in and out of this all the time behind the scenes.
Anyways, so my first invitation to you all is a return to a past conversation. I don't know if it was on this podcast or the Mourner's Bench podcast, which I think we've taken offline now. Sorry. But there's one thing the Methodists have done correctly, or the Wesleyan people, at least. They may not know how to deal with gay people, but they do have this thing called the Wesleyan or the Methodist quadrilateral or the Methodist table. And it says, when you're thinking about faith, religion, um, there are four pillars on which that's based. The first pillar is reason, your logic, your thoughts, right? Being transformed by the renewing of your mind. That has to inform your faith. The second pillar is your experience. Your personal experiences inform your faith. If you are a Black person in America, that should inform your faith. If you are a lesbian woman from Kansas, that should inform your faith. If you are a Latinx human who's gender non-binary or trans, that should inform your faith. So reason, experience, and then the third pillar is scripture. And so I think that oftentimes when we get to a place where we're frustrated with Christianity, we're frustrated with our religious communities, we throw out our sacred texts because there are so many ways that people do harm with those sacred texts. But what I want to invite you to do is to reclaim that sacred text. If that happens to be Christian scripture, then reclaim that and read it. Because if we want there to be transformation in the world, we also have to take that testimony seriously. Now, how we position that matters. If we're saying that this is the only revelation of God and the only way God can speak, to me, that's a problem. However, if we're saying this is one document that outlines how people have wrestled with God throughout time, sometimes well, sometimes poorly, then that is a faithful use of scripture. And that's going to be more transformative than me trying to get a Bible beater to read the New York Times. Reason, experience, scripture, and then fourth is tradition. Hmm. I'm not a traditionalist and no one would call me that. But what I try to do to balance myself and to balance my faith is to think about how have people experienced God throughout time. And if tradition is hard for you, I might invite you to consider that it's not tradition itself, but it may be the tradition in which you're wrestling. Look for different tradition. Look for Eastern expressions of faith. Look for non-Western practices and find out other traditions that might sustain you in this life. So my first invitation is to lean into the Methodist quadrilateral or the Wesleyan table and let all four of those things inform your faith going forward. Damn, that was a long-ass invitation. I know. He, he's allowed to do that. But if the rest of us get loud, then he's like, can you summarize that into a half a sentence? I thought I was in church for real. I almost fell asleep. <laughs> oh. I want to invite y'all to just be human. I want to invite y'all to normalize being human. And let me speak. Maybe, maybe I need to speak to the uh, ultra-conservative Christian who condemns every action of every person that doesn't fit neatly within your, you know, biblical scripture. That that person probably isn't listening anyway, but I want to speak to you. Uh, Normalize the practice of allowing people to be human, to hurt, to feel, to make mistakes, to experience life, even if, you know, it's, it's taboo. Be human and allow others to be human. That's my invitation to you. Just to nuance your statement a little bit, Sam, I think it's to say God or higher power or the Holy Spirit has created us to be uniquely ourselves. And I think that the church has taken away that experience. And maybe it's because I'm not Methodist, but I I think since the Methodists don't like gay people, I think they may be dismissing that part of their quadrilateral as well. I think the tradition of the church also prevents that from happening. So my invitation is to be, to be human and to be yourself. Maybe like that New York Times article is talking about in reference to Lil Nas X. Who are you? What gives you life? 
And what is death dealing? When you know those things, then I think answering these questions becomes easier or becomes complex in a way that humans become more comfortable with. And that brings us to the end of another service here at the Church of Holy Shit and the Temple for All the Saints and Aints. We are grateful to you for once again hanging out with us here on the Holy Shit Pod. Listen, one of the things we love most is connecting with you, our listeners. Send an email to holyshit at theolabmedia.com to connect with us. Ask us a question, submit a discussion topic, or just say hello. Just like Daniel. Yeah, just like Daniel, just like Jordan. As you know, we believe word of mouth is the best way to spread the good news about the Church of Holy Shit. So take five seconds to share this episode with a friend who needs to laugh or that relative who really needs to be challenged. And if you're listening in Apple Podcast or any other podcast app that allows you to submit ratings, please leave an honest rating and a review of no less than five stars. Ashe. That's just another helpful way to send us feedback. And if you're feeling generous, head on over to patreon.com forward slash Theolab Media and leave us a little love offering in the offering basket. I hear you. All right, good people. We will be back next week, same time, same place. And we're going to be talking about Sam's health journey over the last few weeks and sharing a little bit about that. And I guess Katie and I should share a little bit about our own relationships to our bodies and health as well. Don't nobody want to hear about that. That's all right. I don't want to talk about it. Oh, because it's all about you. This is about me, Otis. This is about me, Otis. <laughs> Ain't nobody coming to see you. <laughs> I wonder if anybody going to get that reference. <laughs> the white people won't. We'll be back next week, y'all. We'll see you then. Until then, peace. peace.